hey, Jeff, Jeff, come over here. Come over here. I need your help on this. What, what do you got, Dave? I got, I got this challenge, okay, from a friend. He gave me this great challenge. Oh, yeah? And I need to do this. You're going to take this bucket of water, and you're going to pour this on my head. You want me to take this bucket of ice water and, and pour it on it, your head? That's ice in there. You're going to pour it right on my head. Pour it on your right? head. Okay. Trust me. I got to. If I don't do this, I haven't met the challenge. Okay. So, ready? Here ready? I embrace myself. Ready? Hang on. Okay. I feel like I'm in a wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> What's this about? Oh, oh no, that's the great part. Oh, can you believe this is about Advanced Squad Leader? The guy said I have to take the ASL challenge. I said that's perfect because I love ASL. And now comes the great part. Well, I challenge you. You have to get a bucket of water dumped on you. Uh, Dave, you got this wrong. No, no, ASL challenge. Come on, you do ASL. Come on. No, it's the ALS challenge. The what? ALS. Alzheimer's. Oh. Hello. Hi, can I please speak to Rich Spilkey? Well, you got him. He's here. Whoa. Excellent. Rich. Mr. Spilkey, if you have a few minutes of time, I'd like to talk to you about some great investments. <laughs> well, that's the kind of number I like to hang up on. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff's used to getting hung up on it. Yeah, yes, I, I just am. got a call tonight from a political something or other. And I guess, are those guys exempt from the yeah, yes. call? Yep, they exempted themselves from the no-call list. Oh, I didn't know that. Politicians. Yep. Yeah, we got rid of our home phone about three years ago. Oh, yeah, I found yours. So, the old one? Yeah. Yeah. I took it to my house. You need not. Oh, yeah. Well, Can't cell phones be called by advertisers? I got one today while driving. I didn't. I pulled over to answer it. Oh, good and boy. And I was very ticked. Like, how did these, this guy get my cell phone number? Because I don't put it on anything. Yeah. I, don't know. I, I put it on a lot of things, but I rarely get calls. Mostly they're said they like randomly, from Mexico. They'll something. randomly call numbers until they someone answers, and then oh. they log it in as a number. Yeah, usually know. a lot of times I don't answer a call if it's not in my caller list, Yeah, my contact list. But, but anyway. On the ASO front, Rich, have you heard about that the thing when you the thing when you pour ice water on your head? Yeah, the ice bucket challenge. Yeah. yeah. I th- do you know what that's for? Yeah, I think it's for ALS. I thought it was ASL. Jeff told me it's <laughs> Jeff told yeah. me it's ALS. I thought he's you know crazy. ASL could use some donations. That's, <laughs> yeah. start, something like that. So anyway, I saw Bill Gates drop uh, pouring a bucket of water over his head for for ASL, and I thought, wow, now we'll get uh, finally we'll get nicer boards, like bigger hexes, <laughs> like actual big three D boards. Yeah. And winter boards, too. Yeah. Maybe they so, should do it for ASL, and you have to dump a whole box of counters over your head. Yeah. <laughs> Or, or give a donation, whichever is easier for you. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Rich, um, all of our time has gone into something special lately, and but your time the most and your great ability to analyze rules and to put um, your analytical brain to a topic has been happening lately. And what is that topic? That is Tarawa. Tarawa. Oh, I just thought of a great um, name for this episode. Tarawabundie. Tarawabundie. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I'll type okay. that in. Yeah, type that in. 
my sticky note. Well, it's kind yeah. of it's kind of Jeff's fault. I mean, he and I, after the open, he and I had decided that we wanted to try some kind of campaign game, and we had talked to other people that were also interested, including you, Dave. And you know, we we talked about Valor of the Guards. We talked about Red Barricades. We talked about what else did we talk about? Tarawa, obviously. I thought we talked about one more thing. Maybe Festung Budapest. Yeah, we might have talked about Maybe. that too. Yeah. Um, Anyway, and you know, all of those are good options, but it seemed, at least on the surface, because you had tried the Tarawa stuff a number of years back, so you had some familiarity with it. Yeah, a little bit. I, did, I, had, I had played all the scenarios with Dave Timmen. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't even own the modules, so I didn't have the rules, I didn't have the maps, I didn't have the counters, I had nothing, but it seemed like everybody else did have it. And Jeff showed it to me, and it seemed, it seemed that, you know, that it only had like maybe 10 pages of rules and the... <laughs> the terrain didn't look that hard, and so and the, and the hexes were, you know, the bigger sized hexes that are like, you know, like the red barricade size approximately. Yeah. So I thought it would be a good idea, and I still think that, but I must tell you, it was much harder from a rules comprehension point of view than I expected. Well, and when I was reviewing everything and, uh, and I got to the part of the night uh, scenario: the night rules being used for one of the rounds in the in the scenario. Uh, I know I, in the email went starting to panic a little, and and Rich was good at calming me back back down. So it was it is, ends up being a lot, right? Yeah, there's a lot. We're going to talk about some of the details tonight that I've uh, learned and discovered and tried to make easier for other players through the use of you know, my usual rules tables that I like to make, which we'll talk about, but. But yeah, there is a lot, and it's a lot more to it than you than you think. But again, I'm hoping that these tables will make it easier for others going forward. Yeah, and, and of course, and then it is fun. So, so then you guys contacted us, and Mike and I got together. Now, did you? So then, Jeff, did you read the rules on your own? Through you were playing the scenarios. Yeah, right? so I read the rules, and Rich and I decided we would play through all of the scenarios. And I don't know, did we missed one scenario? Didn't we, Rich? We didn't play that one. I think we we played five of the seven. The yeah. one we skipped the real big one, and we skipped yeah. the night one. Right. Yeah, we skipped the definitely skipped the night one. Yeah, just sort of in um, in preparation for it, and to see if it was something we wanted to do. Just just in that preparation, you know, to see if it was if it had any interest to us, and it was. It kind of it kind of peaked. Well, no, I have, my interest has been peaked for a while. So, but Rich really got into it, and it's Tarawa. So, and it's Tarawa. I mean, it's 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 epic historically yeah and if i can kind of i don't know if i'm jumping ahead or jumping sideways or i feel like maybe doctor who or i never know where i'm going to end up with a question but was it really necessary for them to write so many different rules not use pto rules you know and write all this this entirely not entirely but very different rule set from standard pto yeah not very different you mean for the terrain for yeah for well, terrain and we're going to cover the terrain in some boring detail next show yeah. Right. Um, but not having the PTO terrain, my my thought was it's easier. There's no dense jungle. It's pretty open line of sight. There's the palm debris. I guess it's more ac- like, certainly more accurate. I guess for the for what Tara was really like. Yeah, but when you get into palm debris, you got different terrain. Like in if you played a barricade, you have the debris instead of the rubble. Yeah. So there's some familiarity for me going into it. But, Rich, what's your thoughts about that? Well, 
when, again, when I first heard it wasn't PTO and people were, it seemed like people who were saying that made that seem like an advantage that, oh, there's no PTO. We don't have to worry about PTO. Well, to me, you know, I, I know PTO. So for me to say it's not PTO isn't winning any points with me. Uh, so, I mean, it didn't hurt it. It was not PTO in my mind, but I understand PTO. I played a lot of PTO. So when they said it wasn't PTO, to me, it was like, okay, well, that doesn't make any difference. Yeah. From a complexity point of view to me. But then as I got into it, uh, I just found that the intermeshing of the regular rules with the Tarla rules was quite difficult. And, you know, when we start to go through a few of these rules tables here in a little while, I think you'll start to see what I mean that the intermeshing of what I already knew from, you know, basic squad leader that I played and then trying to apply all these exceptions from Tarawa became kind of cumbersome. Yeah. Not that, not that it's not worth doing. It is worth doing, and I'm glad I've done it, and I'm looking forward to continuing our campaign game, and we're going to play another campaign game coming up uh, soon. And I, you know, definitely I want to take advantage of all this time I put in learning it because I want to play it. So, But anyway, it is, it's wonderful. It's great. They put a lot of love into it. There's no doubt. But you can tell that you know, again, I wasn't around back when they were converting it from, I think it started as a BFP product. Is that correct? It was uh, Heat. Uh, no, it was Heat of Battle. Heat of Battle. Heat of Battle, forgive me. Steve so, Deathlifson. So it was a third, it was a third party. You and, know. and company. It was a yeah. third party, you know, then it became, a, you know, an official MMP thing. And there's definitely, you know, again, I don't want to be too critical, but it was there's some things that were lost in the translation. But again, definitely a labor of love. I admire what they did. I could not have done any better. But I, I, from a rules point of view, purely, I think I've I've helped bring things together. Now, so yeah, in, which, in a way, we were lucky because a year and a half ago, or whatever it was, the Tarawa Players Guide came out, which obviously up until then there was no such thing. So that was yeah, that was a quick. leg up for you, wasn't it, Rich? As you were going, well, yeah, through the players, the I, yeah, the players guide was terrific. I read yeah. the whole thing. I've read it more than once. The player's guide was very helpful, no doubt about it, especially the terrain tables that I understand you're going to go through later, Dave, are super helpful. Yeah, and we, we, um, and we reviewed the um, whole guide in a previous show. Yeah. Um, I wanted to jump in with the terrain and say, though, I, what I really love about it is how it does capture the feel of the whole Tarawa thing. Yeah. With the seawall and, you know, you're getting some cover for that, yet the Japanese can see over it into the ocean hexes, the whole island being so flat. Yeah. You know, it, it just has a whole different flavor. That's why I really like the way that ended up working out. And then I would just throw out my history with uh, Heat of Battle since it came up was, uh, I think I was at a guy's house. I can't remember where. Chris Walters had met him as an ASLer, and then this goes back, um, went to his house, and then I think they actually had an ASL talk, and there were like four or five, six people there. And, yeah, man, I, it's weird. I can't remember who these folk were, but I was so early into the system, and I think they were a group that I didn't game with a lot. I've probably seen them since at various tournaments and things, but they brought out this Tarawa thing. Look at this, you know, from Heat of Battle. Oh, so I went home and ordered it right away. You know, I remember that was my first. So I had the original oh, set. What'd you do with that? Sold it on eBay. Or on eBay. <laughs> I think I probably should have kept it. Yeah, it'd be you interesting know, to have like, that just to yeah, see how yeah. it differs. Yeah, I sold their casino one. I kept their Berlin. I really love the Berlin one. 
from Heat of Battle. Yeah. So another company made it to Critical Hit. And but uh but anyway, so then MMP acquired it, right? And and here we are. So Yeah. So Rich, would you say, you know, in in going into it cuz you didn't really know what to expect. I remember there was, you know, you had some some feelings about that because you didn't really know what to expect. And after you got into it, it's like you got sucked in. You really got sucked into it. It was amazing to watch because you got really deep into it and started turning out, as as you do, your tables to help clarify the rules, which have, which are just amazing. Well, I mean, yeah, that, I guess you're right. I didn't get sucked into it. I admit that's true. Uh, you know, after the ASL Open in April, I definitely wanted to, you know, shift gears and so I wanted to, you know, really immerse myself in something I had never done before with ASL, which is, you know, a campaign game. I had never played one. I'd never studied one. I knew they existed. I knew they were around, but I had never devoted the time to learn one or play one. So I really wanted to take the next um, number of months to do that. And, uh, you know, again, the player's guide definitely was helpful. I bought that. It, it was I, you know, The examples in there are, are very useful. So... Without a doubt, those guys, the players' guide, also did a very good job. But I just felt like there was still a lot of stuff missing and a lot of questions I had even after reading the players' guide and playing the scenarios. And that's when I started to put stuff on paper. Well, yeah. before we jump onto this yeah. charts, should we go to um, just talk about our basic strategies and setups, or do that last? Uh, maybe do that last. Okay. Maybe do that last. My, my, I was just going to say, you know, it's, um, <laughs> and Rich had said something very funny recently because he said he's probably, he's probably the guy that knows more about Tarawa that's never played it yeah. than anybody else. <laughs> Which I yeah. thought, boy, that really, yeah. that really actually, describes uh, it. Actually, Paul Sidhu accused me of that because Paul Sidhu is one of the oh. authors of the Players' Guide. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've drive him crazy. I want to give him a shout-out or credit a little bit here on uh, on your show because yes. I've been driving that poor guy crazy. Um, I don't know if he even volunteered to help me, but I've been sending him emails. We've done a couple of Friday afternoon conference calls where I've been, you know, reviewing this information with him, and he's been saying, well, you're right, but you're wrong. And, you know, we've been, you know, kind of going, I've considered him kind of the Tarawa expert, and so he's been helping me on some of the finer points. So I want to give him credit for spending a lot of time with me on a lot of this information. But um, Did he go through with that restraining order on you? Well, I think that would have been the next step uh, <laughs> after he told me, Richard, the most prepared campaign game player that's never played. Well, it's. Uh, I think what's interesting is probably, and I know for myself, this is the way I played it. I don't know. The person I played when I played it some years ago may not admit this, but probably a lot of people have played Tarawa and played it incorrectly. Well, that may be yeah. true. Yeah. Well, I think that's true with kind of all of ASL at some point, right? But it's as you're learning. Yeah. So so you would pre-play the scenarios to learn it and then trying to get everything done out right here. <clears throat> and we're even doing a practice campaign. Yeah, really. We're doing I mean, campaign plan. game one. It's just half the, and then half the map. You two continue to the next one, and, and I'll be out. Yeah, we'll graduate. I'll go to uh, – <laughs> I'm going to go back with the other group to the – we were supposed to start the uh, – you're going to do Valor, Valor the Guards. Valor the Guards, thank yeah. you. So. so, Rich, when so you started doing your tables, and if, for people that don't know, Rich has published up until we started Tarawa, you had 28 tables? Yeah, Sorry, something, so? yeah, yeah something like that, yeah. Yeah, on various topics uh, to clarify rules and make things easier. So w- when you got into Tarawa, you started some tables, and which one did you start first, and how did that come up? 
Well, the first one was the naval OBA, because Tarawa has a lot of naval OBA, and it's very different. It's not, I mean, first of all, how often do you use regular naval OBA? Not very often. And then, then Tarawa has a whole bunch of, like, special rules just for it. So, yeah. so, so the first table I made had to do with that. So I, I tried to lay out, well, first of all, how does regular OBA work? Naval OBA. And then... I try to show on, the, on the, this is what I'll call table 24. Uh, I just started numbering them at the end of the rules tables I had created previously. So that's why 24 is the first one that's Tarawa specific. And I try to explain, okay, there's, you know, regular um, naval OBA for Tarawa directed by a shore fire uh, unit. You can have it directed uh, from the shipboard observer. And there's this thing called the direct fire option that Tarawa only has that is not in the standard rules. But anyway, there's all kinds of rules about where you trace the line of sight from and how many cards are in the, the uh, chit draw, you know, black and red. And the uh, direct fire rules are quite different than normal direct fire. Anyway, whatever. So I tried to create a table that explained the differences and made it very simple for, the, uh, for someone to actually use in a game. Yeah, was that difficult, even though you didn't actually, you hadn't actually played? It wasn't that bad. I mean, again, you just got to go through it line by line by line, you know. Yeah. How do you get radio contact? What happens when fighter bombers come on? When do you put the black or the red card back in the deck and when don't you? How do you apply the rate of fire? Because they actually get a rate of fire with LBA, which is highly unusual. When can you do white phosphorus? When can't you? If you're using 200 millimeter, it's got to be on this edge. If it's using 120 millimeter, it's got to be on another edge. You know, just just little nit, nitpicky things like that are, you know, just they're easy to record once you're, you know, they're easy to understand. But I just try to put them in little boxes to make it simple for the user. So again, in the in the campaign game we're playing, campaign game one, you guys have one observer, and I think you're going to get a second one, and you could use direct fire if you wanted to. But I think you drew a black card the first two times, so you didn't. A red card, yeah. Or a red card, pardon me. Right. So they weren't able to actually use the table because they kept drawing black cards, and now they just got fighter bombers. Red cards. That's my other phone. They just got fighter bombers, so that's going to uh, cause them not to have OBA again until their fighter bomber is gone. Yeah, and part of the problem with that is the Japanese, they have those giant 120 millimeter guns on the back end of the island. Two of them, and if they, there are two hundred millimeter, two hundred millimeter. Yeah, Singapore, the Singapore guns, so called. Yeah, because they came from a naval ships, right? And they were just put onto the land. I, I mean, think so. Big, yeah, they're big. big yeah, they're, ship yeah, they're guns. big. And uh, as long as those are around, they can apply to the card deck. So we end up with a fifty-fifty chance instead of five black, two red. It ends up being three black, three red. Right. Which is not good 50-50. It hasn't been too good so far. Yeah, so it can be very disappointing to not get... Yeah, so that table's not that fantastic, but it just helped, at least it helped me, and I hope it helped other, will help other players that want to try this. Yeah, I'm sure. Understand the difference between regular naval OBA and Tarawa-specific naval OBA, which is different. Yeah. And so with the direct fire, Rich, uh, the, the, the card deck stays the same, the chits, red and black? There still be the card deck stays the same, but again, if you look at the table, I don't know if you have it handy there. I Dave. do, yeah. But if you look at 
the direct fire Tarawa, like the fourth column over, mm-hmm. and you look at battery access row, yeah. you see how it says the black chit draw required on each player turn for direct fire? Yeah, with a footnote. Yep. So there, I mean, so yes, the, 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 it's five black, two red, you're correct, as modified by the Japanese guns. But then you have to draw every. Oh, player every turn. Player. Yeah. You don't just draw once and say, okay, I've got access. You have to draw every player turn. Okay, right. So it's just a handy-dandy little chart to, uh, you know, guide you through it. Yeah, well, you call it a handy-dandy little chart. It's going to save people significant amounts of time looking for that, unless they're the kind of people that just have read the rules once and know the rules. I suppose there are people like that. But certainly for somebody like me, that would save lots of hours of, of scrounging through the rule book, flipping pages. Yeah, and then there's other little nitpicky things like even if you do HE with direct fire as directed by a shipboard observer and not by a uh, shore fire control party, if you do direct fire and you place HE, you still get a dispersed smoke if you get an HE result of some sort. So, again, another little nitpicky thing. So you kind of get a free smoke, so you can be shooting HE and you're going to get a smoke if you get a, if you get a you know, effect. Right. So just little things like that. But those are huge. I mean, if you're the attacker, you're going to want that smoke. Yeah, yeah. And what's with the rate of fire on the gun? I, well, I, you, you actually have a rate of fire. So if you get a one or two on the two. die roll, uh, on the two hit, you can shoot again. So it would be really, really good if... And that's on the... Which roll? The you could use it for infantry target type, vehicle target type, or area target type, all three. And you use that, you roll, I mean, you, could you roll for each hex? Oh, it's on the accuracy roll. It's on the accuracy roll. Yeah. Because you're only aiming at one single hex. I see it. Yeah, I see it. Right. Boy, yeah. I hope, sure hope we can pull a red card. Black card. <laughs> with red, black card. Yeah, you, oh, what's the matter with you guys? <laughs> well, you gotta, we keep reversing the card. I don't want to have to bomber. keep correcting you guys. Well, you got a fire bomber now, Dave, so you can't use OVT. Yes. Until so you, so your fire bomber, you, you can deliberately... I think you only got one fire bomber, right? Yeah, that's right. It could yeah. be up to three. We got one on the random. Right, so you were unfortunate there. So you, but what you're allowed to do is you can actually deliberately recall it uh, at the end of I forget. I think it's the end of our defensive fire phase when it's active. So you can attack with it once. You can drop the bomb. You can deliberately recall it uh, if you wish to, and then you can try to get your OBA back again on the next turn. Yeah, because I know Mike and I we, we did meet. So we, oh yeah, that was part of our preparation. I took extensive notes on the terrain while I was at Great America. <laughs> I paid what forty eight bucks to go sit and write rules for the show. Really? Yeah, because I don't go on the roller coasters, and that's all my son does. <laughs> I'm like, dude, it's cool. I'll do a couple little coasters with you, and I'll take you to Great America with your friends, and I'll sit. And I wrote like two pages of notes. <laughs> I even did hills, so that'll be coming up on a show soon too. And they're um, probably like Adam. Is that your dad? Aaron. Yeah. Oh, Aaron, is that your dad? Yeah, don't ask me. He's over What's he doing over there? Don't ask me. He's got his geek on. Yeah. Um, so what was my point going to be? Um, oh, so Mike, then I prepared that way. Mike read through everything or a lot of stuff. We haven't read everything yet. We've tried to figure out what we didn't need to worry about, like LVT yeah. landings yet. Because right. we're going to have these assault boats, and I already had boat rules for a couple of shows ago, right? Right. And um, so we then met one night and read through – 
the campaign stuff because we had never played actual. When I talk about me playing campaign game, you know, we talked about Ray Barricades. Yeah, that really wasn't a campaign game, nor was Pegasus Bridge. Right, right those were just really they're, they're big, big scenarios, scenarios that right. acted like a campaign game without yeah. the refit phase. So we didn't know how to read through that, and we're like, "Oh, what does this mean? Oh, a battalion or what, what, what? You know, we get this, and we got to the thing about this Noba, and we were like, "Oh, this is going to be so cool." And we read that the planes appear. You can't do your Noba. We were like, "Well, we don't even want those stupid planes because we're going to have this Noba going all the time," you know. Yeah. Well, now we're darn glad we got a plane because at least I can't, I can't draw a black card on that. Yeah. Or red. You know, another interesting thing, a historic thing, is I should have mentioned <laughs> this earlier. Um, Jim Serafin was good enough to uh, let me uh, borrow one of his books on Tarawa. You guys might have heard of it. It's mm. called um, Utmost Savagery. Correct. Yes. I don't yeah, know if you guys have great. read that book. But I just yeah. read, it, read it recently again in my Tarawa immersion uh, experience here. And I, you know, read, I read the cover to cover. And it was very good, um, you know, very good as an understatement. It was really excellent. But it really helped me understand, you know, what was going on on the different beaches and the poor communication between, you know, people that were only maybe a few hundred yards apart, but they just couldn't communicate with each other. And then, then with respect to the fighter bombers and the OBA and how they felt at the time, the tactical belief was that a plane had a pretty high likelihood of being hit by naval bombardment. So that's why they didn't allow, from a tactical point of view, they didn't think it was a wise idea to have both of those things happening at the same time. I think they changed their mind in large part because of Tarawa after that, mm. is my understanding. But, uh, really? you know, but it helps you understand why they weren't just dumb people. They were just going by what they thought was right at the time. And they had no uh, um, historical actual experience with it, so they kind of had to make the rules as they went along. Exactly. So that really helped me yeah. understand why the rule is the mm. fighter bombers appear, the naval over the OBA stops. It also helps you understand why you're forced to roll for fighter bombers, even if you don't want to, even if you don't want them and you want to keep going with your OBA and your OBA is doing well, should that happen, you're forced to roll for fighter bombers every rally phase, whether you want to or not. As yeah, that's, that's funny you should mention that because I was going to ask you, as you were going through the rules in such detail, did you... Did you read the rules and think, oh, that makes sense, oh, that makes sense? So really, having read the book first was really helpful to you because then it, it made sense why all these rules were in there. Yes, it definitely It wasn't just to make things, it wasn't just to make your life difficult, but they're, they're put in there for a reason. Yes, I agree. Yeah. That was, yeah. uh, again, that's where the labor of love comes in. These guys obviously did their homework, that built this module, and I know you interviewed, uh, you know, the guy, I think you had him on two different episodes, Steve. Yes, and I cannot pronounce his last name, so forgive me. But, you know, he did a great job along with people that worked with him. And you could tell it was a labor of love, no doubt about it. So yeah. uh, I'm just hoping my little contribution just makes it that much more playable and makes it makes other people, encourages them to play it as well. Yeah, I guess we're kind of hoping that this will um, bring some a resurgence of interest in Tarawa and maybe more people will be getting it out and playing it. A lot of people have it. I, I can imagine that a lot of people have it that never played it. Yeah, and I was looking at our record of uh, book reviews. I thought we had done Utmost Savagery, but it's uh, with the old breed that I was thinking of. Oh, that we did. Yes. But um, so we should. I should reread. I mean, I read it too. It is great, Jeff. Maybe you should read it. I'll reread. I read it. a different Tarawa, Tarawa book, book that I loaned to you. Oh, didn't I give it back to you? I don't think so. I mean, I didn't ask for it back, but. 
I did yeah. read a different one that I think was I read that, that was, one too. That was uh, written by a New York Times. I think he was a New York Times yeah. or well, Washington Post well, reporter. Yeah, well, that didn't was we quite review good. that yet? We did. Yeah, we talked about it on one show. I think it's missing in my little record. Oh, okay. but that's not for our listeners to hear. Yeah. So. So anyway, you want to uh, go on with the, the next? What table did you do after? Uh, okay. Well, then I uh, just again some of these kind of overlap with regular ASL rules. So yeah. like the next table was again I I just grabbed yeah I called the table twenty five I called the Tarawa white phosphorus and seawall rules overview. I just sort of lumped those two things together and just slapped them on a on a chart or on a table. And again, there's nothing too crazy here. It's just that there's a lot of white phosphorus going on in Tarawa, both with the naval uh, OBA. The Marines are, you know, loaded with white phosphorus grenades. There's a lot of pillboxes. So I just spent a lot of time, uh, I guess, just putting it all in one place, you might say. Yeah, stuff that's going to be applicable to our game. Yeah, yeah exactly, because there's just a lot of white phosphorus. When do you get a critical hit? When don't you get a critical hit? If you enter a white, we even had the conversation, Dave, if you recall the other night, you know, when you enter a white phosphorus location that was, you know, that was shot out of a, a gun, um, do you take a morale check or not? And, you know, yeah. the answer is o- only when placed, right? Well, you only, only when placed, but if you enter an FFE white phosphorus afterwards, you do take a morale check. An FFE white phosphorus does act like a regular FFE. So it's like, you know, like if you enter an HE, FFE, you know, you, you get hit with the HE. Well, if you enter an FFE white phosphorus, you also take the morale check, uh, even if you're a friendly unit. In fact, if you're a friendly unit, your morale is down by one as a penalty, which is also on the chart here. Mm-hmm, yeah. So anyway, just little things like that. A lot of those are not necessarily Tarawa rules, but they happen a lot in Tarawa. So I put them in. So you put them there so they're in one spot. Yeah, just flipping a pages. I mean, the, Lord of, knows, I, I get tennis elbow almost from flipping around pages in the rule book. Well, when you think about, you know, just this little section that we're on, you know, the white phosphorus rules are in two different places in the regular spotlight rule book, the white phosphorus grenades and then the, the white phosphorus, uh, you know, like area target type effects in Chapter C. You got that. You got, mm-hmm. you got critical hits in different places. You got the uh, pillbox rules in other places. Right. Uh, so, you know, you got like four different sections of the rules right there that you're flipping back and forth for. Anyway, I just put it all in one place to make my life easier. And if it makes somebody else's life easier, that's good. Yes. Great. And then the seawalls, again, the seawalls are not that hard. But again, it's just good to have it all in one place here. So, you know, infantry can move over it like a wall. Not a big deal. Vehicles can't cannot, though, go over it like a wall. They can only go over it via a breach. And so hold your thought on that breach. I'm going to cover that in just a second. So hold hold the breach idea. There's also this plus one seawall hindrance that if it crosses a seawall, your line of sight, and and the target and the firer is not in one of those hexes from which the seawall is being crossed, there is a plus one hindrance, and that happens sometimes. And then I just threw out this big wall advantage thing. So, again, this is a combination of the Tarawa rules and the regular ordinary wall advantage rules. Yeah. Where it's like, who's got wall advantage? You know, if you're in a pillbox, if you're in a building, and then claim it, do you give anything up? So I just threw all the most common situations out there of who's got wall advantage over the seawall. And hopefully this will help resolve 99% of the, of the situations. Yeah, And then when it comes to breaching, 
Um, again, I did my homework here, you can see. And there are six ways I, I figured, I calculated, or I counted, uh, that you can breach a seawall, four of which happen during play, and two of which happen during the refit phase. So, oh, okay. so I've got all six of them listed there. We don't need to go through all six of them. But again, if someone's wondering, well, gee, how do I breach that seawall so I can get my AFEs through it, you know, through the marine player, and you want to do that, of course. Well, you got four ways to do it during the game, and you got two ways to do it during the refit phase, you know, and I documented those. Yeah, especially in, our, in, in campaign game one, the Marines don't have to take a task check to get over the seawall, but in campaign game two and three they do because that's the first day that they landed. And so you also have how to breach them on here, you know. Well, yeah, but in addition to that, in campaign game one, your tanks, I think you have at least two AFEs, they're already starting on the uh, on the front internally. side of the of the seawall, so you don't have to worry about hopping over the seawall. Yeah. yeah. But in a regular game, that you'd have to worry about this a lot. So anyway, there's six different ways, four of them during the game, two of them not. There you go. Nice. Now, the next table, I love to talk about this one. This one's crazy. This one took a long time. This is table 26. And I presume you're going to post these on your website. I'm not quite done with them, though, Jeff, so if you can just give me a few more days. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. no yeah, yeah, we will post yeah. them so, when they're ready to go. And then listeners can, of course, read them over, too. And if anyone can give any advice or input, you'd like that back, right, Rich? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's still a few little bugs here. Uh, and, in fact, some things might even be slightly controversial, uh, you know, you know, like Paul and I didn't agree on everything. We agreed on 90% of things, maybe even more than 90. But there was a couple things where, you know, the rules just don't say. They're just, they're silent, you know. So I think it's blue and you think it's red and, you know, who's right? So, so when you say you didn't agree, do you mean it, it actually got to a point where Paul said, no, I, I think it says this and you said, no, I think it says that? Yes. That Is that actually, what you mean or you just decided you didn't, nobody knew? There were a couple of those. Uh, one oh, of them, okay. one of them, we posted to the uh, board game or to the what do you call it? The uh, uh, game squad. The game squad forums, mm-hmm. and we got a couple of answers back. One supported my point of view, and one supported his point of view. Oh, okay. Hmm. So, bottom line is, MMP is going to have to rule on a couple of the esoteric things that he and I do not necessarily, uh, you know, agree on. But, but again, ninety-nine percent of the things we did agree on, and that was after. You know, the, the, and we only had we were only discussing the things that were already in the gray area anyway. You know, some of the things were not debatable. I was just trying to present them in a logical way. Yeah. So now this one is crazy. This one's not controversial. This is just crazy. So again, I always talk about the rules sections that I got this stuff from. So if you're ever wondering where the heck did Spilky get this from, I always show the rules sections that I uh, pulled it from. So this is kind of cool. So the regular rules you know, talk about what LVTs do after they've unloaded their passengers and how they can unload their passengers. And so if you really get into it, it's it actually, when you start to do the math of how many combinations there are, you know, first of all, I've got an LVT that starts off in an ocean hex or a non-ocean hex. And so beach and hinterland are treated equivalently when it comes to non-ocean. And that's, that's yeah. per the Tarawa rules. Okay, now the LVT could be immobilized, and it could be immobilized for different reasons, and so the thing acts differently based on the reason that immobilized it, yes, and or it could be not immobilized, of course, 
And so if you look at this chart, you might say, well, Rich, why did you make a differentiate between being immobilized by these reasons and being immobilized by other reasons or being immobilized for any reasons? Well, because the rules say that if it's immobilized for these reasons, you do one thing, and if it's immobilized for other reasons, you do something else. So, for instance, for immobilized by excessive speed breakdown or mechanical reliability, it's going to go one way. If it's immobilized for any other reason, it's going to go a different way. Well, we can go into that a bit. Like, right. I don't want to kill you to death with the details. because. Well, I think this is a... But I want to show you that I really did get into the details. Something yeah. I'm not sure I'll ever want to cover, LVT's rules. So maybe yeah, we, we may not. Just do it now. Episode 203, maybe. <laughs> well, you were good enough. Yeah, but we could just do it you now. Guys were, okay, you guys we were good enough it. to allow us to destroy most of your LVTs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we didn't have to worry about it too much. But like, just I just started with the top row. The top row is kind of uh, simple. So you got an LVT. It's in an ocean hex. Uh, it's not immobilized. It's mobile. It's fine. It's got passengers. So if you want to unload them in the ocean, this is pretty simple. If you want to unload them in the ocean, you got to pass what's called an unloading task check. And you do that with the highest morale guy that's a passenger. It's pretty simple. And if you want to unload, if you don't pass it, if you look further to the right, you can't unload. And that, you know, I guess that's your only penalty is you can't unload that movement phase. If you should roll a 10 or something and your morale is 9. But you may unload. It's an option. You don't, it's not mandatory. But if you choose to unload in the ocean, you've got to pass this task check. All right? Okay. So that's not that hard. Now, if you're immobilized in the ocean, going to that next row there, and you've got good order of passengers... Now you must unload, and you don't have to pass that task check to do so. You must unload okay. in the ocean. Okay, so that kind of makes yeah, sense. Not a, yeah, yeah not, they got to get out. Yeah, boat's broken, got to get out. Exactly. Uh, so that's not that hard. Um, if you're immobilized for another reason other than those two, you may unload just like before, but you do have to pass the task check in that case. So if you got shot at and were immobilized by some kind of a shot, like a machine gun to kill or something, then you do have to go back to passing the task check again. Then if you do unload, if you successfully unload, the LVT crew abandons the LVT, you place a wreck counter, but you do not place a crew and you do not give a victory point to the Japanese player. Yeah, because points matter a lot in campaign games. Yeah. Right. You don't get the crew either. Yeah, and let's clarify this ocean is, of course, shallow. Right, it's shallow ocean. I so guess I should have said that. Aren't, people aren't drowning when they jump out there. Right. They can wade in They don't the have shore. to swim. Yeah, yeah they're, I'm they're going to type the word shallow right now in the thing. That's what I meant, but it's, it's, well, it's Tarawa, so it has to. It's Tarawa, so yeah, everyone should know. But anyway, so I've already made it. And then you have fishing. this category where they're, where they're broken. Right, and if you're broken, well, then you got to do something else. So if you're broken... You uh, have a choice. If it's not immobilized, you may route in the route phase beneath the ALF, beneath the LVT. But if the uh, LVT is immobilized and you've got a broken passenger, you must route in the rally in the route phase beneath the LVT, and then the LVT is recalled. And of course, and what what happened to the passengers when the LVT is recalled? I think they sit. Oh wait, and they're broken. They're in broken. The water. Yeah, you're broken. They're just... broken in the water. You just stay broken in the water. Yep. You're not okay. half squatted like the no, 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 because no, no. you were broken. You were broken in the LVT. That, that's a great point. That's a great point, Dave. Hold that thought. I'm, I have another table that talks about the differences between passengers <laughs> and the guys in the water. So hold that thought. <laughs> but but no, in this in this case, a passenger is not 
a fanatic dude like a guy in the water would be. A passenger is not infantry, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, right. Yeah, I remember reading that somewhere. A passenger is not considered infantry. Right. Right. You have to be on foot to be infantry. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, but I have another table coming up on that, so hold that thought. But then if you're in a non-ocean hex, now here's where I took some liberties. If you're in a non-ocean hex, like say you're on the beach or in a hinterland hex, and you still have your passengers say, um, you know, this is different. So now, again, the regular rules say, the regular LBT rules say you're recalled and you got to get out of there. But Tarawa says you can stay and fight, but you have to pass a task check to stay. So I created my own little spilky ASL term, and I called it a stay task check. Yeah. And you might not like that. I made up my own term. No, I like but that. It, I, but it makes sense to me. So, like, again, before, if you wanted to unload, you had to pass a task check to unload. Now you have to pass a task check. I mean, you can unload anytime you want now that you're at a non-ocean X. But if you want to stay around, you've got to pass a task check. Yeah, because you kind of want to get to the beach. Right, and if you fail it... On the beach hex, you must unload whether you want to or not. So, okay, and the LVT is going to be recalled. That's right. That's correct. Yeah, because their job is to get the troops to the shore and go back. Right. So the point is, I guess, when I first was looking at this, my mind started to freak out because you had ocean hex and non-ocean hex. Okay, that's not so hard. You had immobilized and not immobilized. Okay, that's two more things. Then you have good order passengers or no passengers at all or broken passengers, okay, that's two more things, so that's two times two times two, that's eight different situations. But then Paul pointed out to me, well, Rich, there's more than that, because there's different ways of being immobilized that have a different effect. They're like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So there's 16. <laughs> and then I realized that some of them were, it didn't make any difference. So that's why, oh, so that's yeah. why you, have, you don't see 16 rows here. You only see you know, something less than that. I didn't really have 16 situations. But theoretically, you've got 16 situations, yeah, just that I combined some of them together to have a number less than 16. So anyway, again, I don't want to go too crazy with the math, but literally there's 16 different things that I boiled down to, I guess, 9 or 10. And that took a lot of research to say, okay, if I fail the task check, if I pass it, if I'm broken, if I'm not broken, must I, may I, you know, that kind of thing. So that's that one. Uh, and then at the bottom, this is just some simple stuff just to remind us, uh, again, loading your LBTs is very important, uh, especially uh, you know, to the Marines, because they kind of want to load their LBTs to the minimum because they're going to lose them and they're going to lose lots of points. So the rules allow you to have a minimum amount of portage points in these LBTs in the beginning. And so I imagine that you know, if you're going to want to load them up, you still have to follow the rules. You still have to at least have the minimum amount of portage points in there. Yeah, And so uh, I just refreshed everybody's memory of how many points things are worth and what the minimums are, depending upon the LBT. So this is not, you know, there's nothing controversial there. It's just a handy-dandy reminder. Again, so we don't have to flip through the rules to find that if we can't remember what the costs are and so on. Right, and I even did a little thing in gray. If you're not playing Tarawa, you might have noticed that on the naval okay. Yeah. Also, the, the non-Tarawa things that... <laughs> to non-Tarawa scenarios, I put in gray. So that's that one. Mm -hmm. Moving on to 27. Again, I like this one a lot myself, if you'll allow me to say that. 27 is, you know, you're cruising through the ocean in your LVT. You're hitting these tetrahedrons. Some of them have wire. Some of them don't. 
Uh, you have different, you know, you have personnel on foot, you know, waiters, you've got LVTs with grapnels, LVTs without them, you've got AFEs, you've got boats, you've got all kinds of things going through these uh, tetrahedrons or potentially going through them, and it's completely different, like, how you treat these things. And I did find, again, I don't mean to be critical, but I did find a couple of little errors on that uh, Tarawa terrain. terrain chart, and I think I pointed those out to you, Dave, that maybe you can talk about when you get to that. But this kind of summarizes the most common situations of when you, uh, you know, when you encounter a, a tetrahedron with or without wire. How many movement factors or movement points do you have to expend? What are the bog rolls that you need to pass? Uh, what, how do the mine attacks work if the mine strikes you? And then, furthermore, if you look towards the bottom of the table, it's talking about you know, how do you remove the tetrahedron and the wire? What are the things that allow you to do that as the marine? And what if you just want to remove the wire only? How do you do that? So if you want to remove both things, you only have three ways to do that, which are listed. If you want to just remove the wire part of the tetrahedron, then you got three other ways that you can do that. So... Wow. Yeah, I'm just refreshing my own memory because if I'm the marine guy and I'm encountering this wire and this tetrahedron, in a way, I mean, again, I don't want to reveal too much of our strategy, Jeff, when we attack as the marine, but assuming that he does set up these tetrahedrons and stuff, which I assume that they will, you know, I'd like to at least consider the option of just plowing right through these things because presumably he's going to set up his guns elsewhere, assuming that we're not going to plow through his tetrahedrons and wire. But I'm thinking, let's plow right on through them. Even if we get some wrecks, those wrecks create hindrances, which make the next AFs and LVTs able to get through more readily. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's a stupid idea. But I'd like to talk about it. We can talk about it, you know, when we plan our attack later. So don't post this uh, this podcast for our our, uh, opponents (laughs) here. Because that's what I'm thinking. And that's why I wanted to have this, because I wanted to be aggressive and maybe consider flipping through, uh, just, just driving right on through. So this this talks about, so I think this is, I think it's helpful because it tells you what to do, how many points it takes, how to uh, clear the stuff if you want to try, what the modifiers are for the uh, for the bog checks, and, and how the mines attack if you're attacked by a mine. Yeah, you're not going to provide these charts to our opponents when we play the big game, are you? Oh, sure I am. Oh, no. It's just the rules. There's no strategy. No. Yes. I gave them to, I gave them to Mike and Dave. Yeah. That's different. <laughs> okay. We're too dumb to use them effectively. <laughs> oh, yeah. I plan to share them. They're, they're just rule stuff. All right. Anyway, so that's cool. But the next one gets to what Dave was talking about earlier, so I'm excited about number 28. I'm flipping on to 28 now. Okay. So, again, at the top, pretty straightforward, Pathfinders. Again, well, the rules yeah. are very clear. I don't think there's anything too crazy here. It's just a reminder, hey, you can't pin. You're not subject to heat of battle. You can be fanatic. That's something that a lot of people might forget if you're mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing a seaborne assault. You must use armored assault, and you can't CX. You're eliminated immediately if you leave the hex that your vehicle's in. You're also right. eliminated if you fail a wound severity die roll. Or if you fail a morale check when you're already wounded, you know, kind of like a hero. You can't berserk, right? Right, you cannot be berserk. 
cannot be berserk on you. So just a handy dandy yeah. reminder of yeah. what pathfinders do and how they work. It's just, I don't know. To me, it's easier to have it laid out like that. Yeah. Um, now the seaborne assaults. Now this is interesting. Again, the infantry, not PRC. You notice there, Dave. They are, um, you know, could be in four different kinds of terrain. They can be wading in the shallow ocean. They can be on the beach. They can be on the pier, or they can be in an exposed reef. So there's kind of four different kinds of terrain where they act like like they don't act normal. We'll say they have special effects. Once they're once yeah. they're on the uh, hinterland, well then they're you know normal. So like, are they fanatic? Well, in all four cases, yes, they're fanatic in all four cases. But you treat pins differently, um, depending upon what terrain you're talking about. There, you can see that I differentiated between those. Um, if you look at, uh, like, for example, let's say you're waiting in the ocean and you get a pin result. Well, there's no effect. You don't pin, but you still take a pin check for booby trap purposes. And this, mm -hmm. pin, okay. and this pin pass check cannot generate a sniper. Okay? And that's, again, really important because the Japanese sniper is probably a high number, uh, as yeah. it ought to be. Mm -hmm. And so, so you might say, the Marine might say, well, I'm immune to pinning in the ocean. I don't have to take it. And the Marine can say, okay, no, you still got to roll it. And the Marine will say, well, no, it can't generate a sniper. And the Marine is right. But it can generate a booby trap. Therefore, you must roll it. Yeah. So, again, it's esoteric. It's a small little thing, but it could make a difference. It could make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, then there's the you know, casualty result. Uh, if you break, you know, that you know. You take casualty results instead of, uh, instead of breaking. You do different things with leader loss morale checks, depending upon what terrain you're in. Um, heat of battle either doesn't apply or does something different, depending upon what kind of terrain you're in. And then firepower from. Now, this is kind of interesting. If you're in the ocean, you know, you have all kinds of restrictions on your firepower. You can't have it leader directed. You can't. Uh, yeah, it's area. Yeah, it's all area. It's all bad. But even on a beach, I'm not sure if you noticed that. I mean, this kind of caught me off guard, too. You can't do multi-hex fire groups from the beach. So you could have a leader direct, a big stack, you know, so you're not that restricted. But you can't do a multi-hex fire group. So like uh, my opponent, Mike, Mike Stubitz, was doing these huge 36 firepower shots against me in our campaign game by combining, you know, two sets of 18 but he was in hinterland, so he was allowed to do that against me. He was not on the beach, but like when you guys were on your side of the of the campaign game, and Dave was, you were on the beach. I'm not sure if you ever did any multi hex fire groups or not. No, I don't think no, so. Although it wasn't necessarily because I was remembering that. It just happened to be the way I had stacked them up. Yeah. So anyway, even though yeah, in general you're fanatic, and in general you do casualty reduction rather than breaking results. That's all true, but there's other little curveballs here of which things cause booby traps and which things cause, cause snipers and how you fire out or how you treat heat of battle or how you treat leader loss morale check. Um, so there's like little, little fine points that I just tried to summarize all here in a simple little table depending upon where the marine unit is. Yeah, and just looking through, this is the first time I've really looked through this very carefully, but... Just reading, uh, you know, if people get a hold of these tables, just reading the footnotes on these are very informative. And it's almost better to read the, read, go through your tables first and then, and read, then the read the rules. read the rules. Yeah, I think that could be true. Mm -hmm. Because trying to read the rules. Just, yeah. You get the summary in your head. Yes. 
then you go back, read the verbiage. Right. Well, yeah, like footnote three, I guess. Now you mentioned that, Jeff. Thanks for saying yeah, That's what I was just looking yeah, at. Yeah, footnote three, waiting in shallow ocean. Okay. So you're waiting in shallow ocean and you're cloaked. You're allowed to be cloaked. Path that, yeah. you know, it says pathfinders can't be cloaked, but support weapons and single man counters are cloaked along with the, uh, with, you know, with the multi-man counter that they're with. So it says here, again, as you can see, the multi-man counter is concealed, meaning that it's cloaked, but this does not cause the one-half firepower, you know, if you're firing at the multi-man counter. Um, yeah. And then if a weapon becomes unpossessed, it's eliminated. Close combat attacks are not allowed in an ocean hex, per the rule listed. And units in an ocean hex are not considered known for berserk charge purposes. So that says quite a bit there. I mean, if because Japanese guys go berserk a lot, they do not have to charge in an ocean guy. Okay. Furthermore, close yeah. combat attacks are not allowed in an ocean. So what does that mean? Well, if you're smart and you're the American and you got these AFVs, if you want to be conservative, you just stay in the ocean, you know, adjacent to the beach, which doesn't hurt the AFV any. Um, and then the tank hunter heroes cannot attack you there because that's close combat and you can't do close combat in the ocean. So that footnote three actually says quite a bit. So okay. that's that one. Um, now the next one is again, I think helpful, uh, in my opinion. So here is, you know, again, you're, you're talking about vehicles. They could be LVTs or AFVs, you know, the M3A1s, the M4A1s. So, again, the rules very clearly say, you know, about bogging. If you bog in the ocean, you're automatically mired. You go straight into the mired condition if you bog in the ocean. So this is just reminding you of that. But then if you're going to try to remove the bog, which, of course, you're going to try, these are the modifiers that you apply to your color die roll when you try to remove it. And what's interesting is, you see how I drew a line through the plus one if mired? Normally, you do add plus one if you're mired, right, to your bog removal roll, but not, not in an ocean. So I drew a line through that on purpose to let people know I didn't forget it. I put it there, and I drew a line through it to indicate that, no, it really isn't there. Okay. Now, if you're trying to remove bog in a beach, hard sand, well, first of all, you roll for every hex. And by the way, that's one of the footnotes that I believe is incorrect. On the Tarawa chart, it says that you roll um, as mud, you know, meaning one roll for a whole bunch of hexes. You do that on hinterland for sure, but you don't do that on the beach. So that was another little small uh, uh, item I had a uh, question about on the Tarawa terrain chart. But anyway, so you roll for each hex, the bog, and if you bog your bog, you're not mired on the beach. And then when you try to remove the bog, you can see the modifiers there. You get a special minus one Tarawa on land effect, which cancels the mired plus one. There you do apply the mired, but it's canceled by the minus one on land. And again, the hinterland, you see that. You know, the other stuff, like if you bog on a trench or a wire or whatever. So anyway, I just try to put it all in one little spot. Because you know you have lots of AFVs and they're going to get bogged somewhere. There's a lot of bogging. Yeah. So that's that one. The next one is, again, just the handy-dandy little table. It's the uh, LVTs, again, with passengers. They're just a little different than a normal, I guess what we're used to is half-tracks with CE passengers. That's a more common thing in ASL that I was more used to. So here, mm -hmm. there's actually three different things. If you don't put a counter on it at all, there's an inherent crew that's considered CE, and the passengers are considered buttoned up in that default case, which is different than half-tracks, where 
either they're all buttoned up or they're all seat keys. Yeah. But in this case, you know, they're either all. If you do mark it with a button up, then everybody's buttoned up. If you mark it with a CE, then everybody's CE. But if you put nothing, you know, there's this other condition. Furthermore, what's interesting is if they are all CE, certainly they can all fire. But the passengers are times one half for mounted fire because this is not a half track. Um, they can now. Here's another interesting thing: you can fire the passengers in a fire group with the LVT uh, anti-aircraft machine guns. But if you read footnote B, which it points to, you can do that. But then you can't use a leadership modifier because the leader can't direct the anti-aircraft machine guns because it's not a half track. Conversely, you can direct the passengers with the leader, but then you can't combine it with the anti-aircraft machine guns of the LVT. So you, ah, have, to, so you okay. have to pick your poison. Yeah. So that's what that's trying to say. So again, you know that's going to happen. You've got 30 LVTs with passengers. This is going to be a question that's going to come up. Yeah, sure. And I like that you have on uh, footnote C that the vehicle note Q is in here too, so you don't have to go flipping around through your vehicle notes. And stuff. Exactly. I'm just trying to point people, because if they like, Spilky, you're full of shit. Where'd you get this from? Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? No, you're no. not. You'll have, to, you'll have to bleep that. <laughs> Spilky, you're full of it. Uh, you know, at least I'm showing the people where I got the information from. Yeah, and if you look at the next one, the cloaking, and this shows the com- the complexity that you're bringing together into one place, G14.23. Mm-hmm. And another G reference, and then E, 5.123, and then the campaign game rule 5. Exactly. And uh, there's even more complicated ones on here. But So, again, that's that's great that you've taken those sources and brought them into one place. Well, I appreciate that, David. Get here with the sniper attacks. You know there's tons of sniper attacks in Tarawa because you're rolling a lot of dice. The sniper numbers are high, relatively speaking. And you got all these cloaked units and passengers and stuff that are cloaked. And how do you deal with... A one sniper attack, a two sniper attack, when the nearest unit is one of these funky cloaked things. It yeah. was driving me crazy. I couldn't, and, and you know it's going to happen over and over again, and I'm not going to know what to do. So I tried to lay out every combination I could think of of common things of what you do and what you don't do, and I think I got it here again, and you know it's going to happen. So that's why I put it in one handy dandy place. Nice. So, you know, like, for example, the far right-hand side, um, it's talking about a cloaked leader, whether it's a passenger or, or waiting infantry, either way. So the leader's cloaked. He's not visible, you might say. So let's say a, uh, a one or a two sniper attack hits that cloaked leader, or that cloaked unit, okay? Well, as it says in the sniper attack column, the single-man counters are not eligible sniper targets while they're cloaked. Um, and then, then furthermore, uh, waiting infantry can't be pinned, and therefore they're an ineligible sniper target when the die roll is a two. Oh, yeah. If it's a one, of course, then it can break the multi-man counter, which wouldn't break them. It would casually reduce them, right? Um, but then, uh, then it would go somewhere else because that's not an eligible target. But then, then back to the far right, let's just say you fired at that cloak. Uh, one, one second. Ineligible sand target, which means uh, that if that is the closest, you would go to a different target? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Oh. You would actually go to a different target. Oh, I was thinking like, they don't have to take the check other than for checking for well, 
No, I, I think uh, I was figuring, oh, well, they're not eligible, so right, you treat, there's you, you no treat, effect. You'd go to a different Right, house. you treat it like it's a buttoned-up thing that's immune, and you keep on going. Okay, I do that, okay. with, that with buttoned-up, yeah, but I don't think I realized that with... Yeah, and again, I might be wrong. I'm, I don't think that's so. That's how I interpret it, because if you got a two, you can't do anything to those guys. Um, <clears throat> a one, you can. So anyway, that, that, that's what's weird about it, is a two, it's ineligible, and a one, it isn't. And you never see that anywhere else in Squad Leader that I'm aware of. Yeah, that's... That's a, that's a very odd one. Yeah, but that rule itself about the leader, then he can reveal if he wants to use his modifier, but then he gets casually reduced. And it is, I remember reading that when Mike and I were going through it all. But then you're like, okay, I'm not going to pull that out of my memory <laughs> when the yeah, situation no happens. Yeah. You know, because it's so, um, yeah, it's nowhere else in the rules except Tarawa. And, and here it is. And you're, you're going to have, you know, in our campaign game that we're playing, you didn't get guys coming in cloaked, you know, in the beginning because you just set up the board. Yeah. But in your next, the n- uh, next campaign set. game scenario, you are going to have some cloaked dudes coming on. In fact, I think you have like Mike and I calculated. We were on the phone the other night, and we calculated you're going to get 42 squads Yay. in that. Okay, we'll do. And so you're going to have 42 cloaked counters approximately. And so yeah, this is going to happen. Does sound like a lot, but all right. So the next uh, the next table is again a helpful one in my opinion. It's the Japanese guns. I think this is kind of fun and kind of helpful. Um, again, the table in the rules itself has you know how many points the guns cost and some basic stuff like that. But here I try to again put it all into one spot. The things that a Japanese setup person would want to ask themselves. So yeah, you want to know how many points they cost, but you also want to know. You know, do they have any special ammo? Do they have any breakdown numbers that are, you know, different than average, the repair numbers? Can they shoot anti-aircraft fire? And is it light or heavy? Because, again, there's a lot of fighter bombers that the Marines have. You're going to want to know that. Uh, Can you set up in a building? Can you set up in a pillbox? Can you change locations in between scenarios? Can you hit in the next scenario? Here's a cool footnote, Dave, that you may not know. Look at footnote number two. So, for example, let's say you've got a 70-millimeter infantry gun, and let's say you set it up in a building, which I think... Yeah, I think, yeah Mike and I looked at that rulebook. So, going. footnote yeah. number two says you may not change your location if you set it up in a pillbox, so it has to stay there in between scenarios. But you can change it up to three hexes away if you set it up in a non-pillbox location, and you can use hip in the next scenario yeah. if you do that. Right, because it's like nighttime and overnight, everyone's they're sh- shifting around a little bit. And but normally you can't. But, I mean, normally you cannot hip stuff very often in Tarawa because the rules say you know guns have to work. Guns don't. Yeah, because of the reconnaissance. So now here you actually can hip in certain situations, but not until the second scenario of the campaign game. And then in the lower right hand corner is the effect on the draw pile of the marine. We were talking about that earlier, Dave. Uh, you know those guns have. Uh, Oh, right. There it is. You know, have the minus one black or plus one red, as the case may be. So anyway, I tried to put it all in one spot. Uh, also, the differences between the guns with footnote three and the support weapons above, if you look at footnote three, the Japanese guns, not support weapons, get that spy- special minus one acquisition to hit roll the first time it fires on a vehicle target type at an LVT in an ocean. If they're... Uh, if they're willing to, I guess they have to relinquish their concealment as the penalty for utilizing that minus one benefit. 
So again, th- that's not happening in our campaign game scenario because you weren't coming in from the ocean. But that's pretty important, I'd imagine, in a normal campaign game. I think that even happened in a scenario that we played, Jeff, if I recall. I think it did. And um, that's an interesting rule. And I, uh, when I read that, I just... As I read the rules, I often try to apply it to a real-world situation because sometimes it just helps it make more sense in my head. And I could not make sense out of why they did this. I think it had, Other than, it, does it create some kind of balance? I think it's, that is there's a footnote in the rules themselves that describes oh. this. And I think it says something like, I don't have it in front of me, but it says something like, you know, you can see that they're coming. You know, they might be a mile off, but, you know, there's no secret. They're They're on their way. They're... You yeah. can you know see them out there with a binoculars or whatever. So I think that that implies that you're already kind of aiming in that general direction. Oh, yeah, that's one okay. way I took it. Okay. Okay. The next table again, you might say. Well, just oh. the, you know, this is a, this is a very nice table because the Japanese have a lot of of uh, purchase points to use in to buy guns, and everything everything you need to know about guns is right here in this table. Yep, and there's quite a few different ones. Yeah, there's a lot of different ones to choose from. You don't think there's that many when you first look at it. Yeah. I also put the to-kill number in there, again, just because, you know, as the Japanese player, you're thinking about obviously stopping the infantry primarily, but you know that he has some AFEs and he also has, you know, the LVTs. The LVTs only have like a zero or a one armor. But, you know, if you you have to have some anti-tank capability. Yeah. You can't just sit there and, you know, only go against the infantry. So this this is you know it's giving you a reference you know what's the two kill number okay well I got one of those so I, you know but of course the the ones with the high two kill numbers are cost the most points so you know you can't go after just the tanks either or else you won't have enough guns so anyway that's that one um, now the next table you might say Rich why'd you waste your time there already is a bombardment table in the player's guide that Paul Sadu himself made. And I'd say, well, yeah, you're right. He did make one, and it is helpful, and I definitely read it, and I definitely um, found it useful. But I just felt like I needed to create this one because I felt like this clarified some things because it breaks it out between what happens to the terrain and then what happens to the units, which are different. Yeah. And you've got those funky rules where, you know, one rule says that there's a plus two for everything, and then you you know get the minus two for sand, but the minus two for sand only pertains to certain things and not in certain other things. And then then units also get this you know when they get hit with a bombardment, they get hit with a plus two morale check, which is also affected by the plus two for the special naval OBA. So that's like plus four, right? And then sometimes they get the minus sand, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're affected by what happens to the terrain, and sometimes they're not. This table took me friggin' forever to make and understand, and I had Paul's table to start with. <laughs> and it still took me a really long time, and I called Paul on the phone, and we talked about it, and I think he agrees with everything here. I guess I'm not 100% sure he does, but I'm, I'm 95% sure that he does. But um, you can see, look at all the footnotes. I know you love my footnotes, Jeff. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. It's, it makes good reading. Oh, yes, it oh, does. Oh, it's crazy. The things, and again, we don't have a bombardment in the scenario we're playing, but there's like four bombardments, I think, in the, in the big campaign game that we're coming up, Jeff. So you know we're going to use the tab- this table like crazy. You know, like one thing look, that's driving me crazy to this day. Look at the command bunker row. Command bunker. It's about the fifth thing down. Fifth thing down. Yeah. Okay. And you'll see why I'm pulling my hair out what little I have left. So the base, 
terrain or the base morale for the terrain for the command bunker terrain thing it's 12. is twelve. Okay, yeah. And you add two to the die roll for you know the special rule, but then you subtract two for sand because the command bunker gets the sand benefit according to the rule. So that's basically a zero effect, right? Yeah. And you can't roll higher than twelve, right? Not in this no, game. You can't roll higher than twelve. Therefore, it cannot <laughs> it cannot fail. It cannot fail because you can't roll a 13. It's impossible. Oh, it has to be higher okay. than the... But if you do get a 12, you could start it's a possible flame. to get a flame. And if you look at the footnote, let's see what footnote is it. It is uh, footnote C, four. Four? Anytime a terrain or a unit rolls a 12, you do a subsequent die roll. A one or two is a shell hole. Three or four is a flame. Five or six is both. And in each case, of course, that's applicable. So, you know, you might say a command bunker is immune, and it almost is. But if you get a 12, then you get that subsequent die roll. You put a flame there, and I guess the thing can start on fire later if you got a flame there. Which is different from uh, the island command bunker. The island command bunker right beneath that very specifically says it is immune to bombardment. You don't even roll. It is immune. But if you get that 12 on the command bunker... You have a, I don't know what the percentage chance, I think 50-50 or something after the 12 to, to you know, put a flame there. Again, the units are, and then the units take a morale check as it shows, but it's, you know, the morale check isn't that painful for those guys. Did it specify in the rules that it could do the flame or that's nope. just deduced nope. from the I just, rules? I right. Just, I wonder if they meant to say the command bunker's immune too. I don't know. Yeah, I deduced it. It did not say that. It, it, right. It, it, again, that's what's driving me crazy. If they really wanted it to be immune, that, that that's why I deduced what I deduced, Dave, because... Right. In the command bunker rules, it specifically says it's immune. Whereas with a command bunker, it said the morale is 12. Yeah. So, and, so I had to think to myself, yeah, well, why? I could, I could see why, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah a, it's a good example oh, driving, of what you were talking driving about. driving me crazy. Driving me absolutely up the wall trying to figure that crap out. Anyway, I think I got it right. It's the best I could do. And then the last one is the 9? Uh, or 32? 32, I'm still working on. Um but here, I was just, you know, again, I was trying to, I was, I'm the Japanese, or Jeff and I are the Japanese in the scenario that we're, you know, defending in the campaign game one. So, I just some basic stuff. You know, pillboxes have to be adjacent to the beach. they got to have at least one of their covered arc hexes with a beach hex included. Yeah, the beach, yeah. They get one trench or passage for every tuba. Two pillboxes given or purchased, fractions rounded up. In the initial campaign game scenario, the pillboxes have got to be filled to their capacity, so you must pack them full of Japanese. You can't avoid that. You must. And then the bomb-proofs are kind of a little different. The bomb-proofs are pillboxes, but they cannot set up adjacent to the beach. So those you're setting up kind of one or two hexes in, supporting the pillboxes, I guess, but they can't be adjacent to the beach. Now, here I made another interpretation that you guys may not agree with, but... You know, whatever, it doesn't say one way or the other. It, the bomb-proof rules very specifically say that you treat them like pillboxes, okay, unless otherwise stated. Okay, well, if you treat them like a pillbox, then that means you should also receive one trench or passage for every two bomb-proofs. Now, I've, I've stated that there with my own typing, but the rules don't say that. The rules just say treat them like pillboxes. So if you looked at that setup that I showed you, Dave, where I showed you the black and the red and the green colored um you know, purchase points that we did and the, the trenches that we selected, we did assume that we got this 
and we and again following a strict read of the rules i guess we would but then so that was my thing. yeah it, yep i would say they would say that that is not the case if they meant that to not be the case but again they could have made it a little bit more clear by saying and bomb also yeah. received one french or passage but they didn't right. say that yeah. And then with the Japanese reserve units, um, again, it's just a little tricky. Again, it's not that hard. I'm just trying to lay it all out in one spot. You know, you get these reserve units, and then you can um, set up a certain percentage of them on board immediately, but they have to be at least three hexes away from the Marine guys. And then you can start to roll uh, to add more units into the reserve pool, but you can't do that during the initial campaign game scenario. That's the the one that we're in, Dave, or Dave and Jeff. So, you know, that's why we haven't been doing that. Yeah. Uh, but then you can start to pull stuff out of the reserve pool on every turn of any campaign game scenario. And you can see campaign game one requires a certain single die roll to uh, less than the turn number or less than or equal to. And then, then if you succeed, then you roll one die to see how many units you get. Whereas in the other campaign games, you roll two dice because you have a bigger reserve pool. And then it tells you where to enter them. So that's just a handy-dandy thing for the Japanese. I think I've written down by hand a couple other things I want to add to this that I haven't quite uh, gotten to yet. It's just, again, when you're setting up, these are the things you got to keep in mind. And Jeff and I did go through this with a fine-tooth comb, and I think we followed it pretty good. And now tables I'm working on that you don't see that I'm working on here in the background is I'm working on a fighter-bomber table which lists, lists all the different task checks, maybe not all, all is probably too strong of a word, but I'll probably, you know, indicate the top 20 or 25 most common things you might be attacking, like an emplaced gun or a, a guy in a pillbox or a guy in a bomb proof or a tank in a, a tank in a palm debris hex or something, you know, I'll probably have the top 20 some things that are likely to be attacked with a fighter bomber. And then it could be concealed or it may not be concealed. So I'll have a column for it's, if it's concealed and a column if it isn't. And then I'll have uh, that, the task check modifiers for all that stuff. And then I'll have a, another column that talks about if you try to attack with the bomb using direct fire, what the modifiers are. And then you're also allowed to attack with the bomb on area target type. If you remember that from Chapter E, that's an option. Yeah. So then the modifiers might be different if you're doing area target type with the bomb. So I'm going to try to think of the top 20 or 25 things you might attack with a fighter bomber. What's the task check you need? And then what are the two hit numbers you need for the various options you have? So that's one that I'm working on that I'm not done with yet. Yeah, well then let's turn our attention just uh, briefly. We'll try and wrap up in about 10 minutes or so, make this a whole show. Um the strategy or how the game's going so far and what your thoughts are on that and Jeff's and mine all together. Well, why don't you guys go first? I haven't thought that. So, well, I, well, I would say um, for the Marine, of course, you're setting up in two for campaign game one. You're setting up in two predetermined places, mostly in hinterland hexes. And one thing I am getting uh, creamed on lately the last, well, what, do we only play two turns? Yeah. Yeah, two turns. Um, is Jeff started hitting some, and Rich from across the, uh, the way what is that a little bay area yeah it's like yes the lagoon yeah the crossfire across there my guys were on a corner of the beach there and yeah failing that morale check you know they're half squatted because they're uh fanatic on the beach but there's nowhere to route to so (laughs) they just get half squatted so i I don't know if you guys remember i started inching to my left (laughs) 
on the beach to try and get out of your line of sight as much yeah. as possible. And then it's like, I got to just get moving, you know? I got to get, I can't, I can't sit here. So, and I love the way that captured the flavor of that because you're reading that all the time how the first landing wave got in there, and then the next day, you know, they were on the beach with, uh, holding a, these toeholds against the Japanese, and then looking back, they see the next waves coming in, getting slaughtered, and they, they get the, the, drive we have to move forward you know yeah and i'm doing it just to preserve myself uh, but i do know there's boats coming on soon is it next turn three or waders more marines. you'll have you'll have a few waders yeah on turn three yeah or and boats then, then you'll we get the um or boats right then you'll get a huge force in the next scenario yeah if we yeah, um so so but th- you, if i could just correct you you can yeah. route off the beach you can route oh into but the they ocean. don't break on the beach they're just half spotted um they are half squ- yeah that's right so um, so I guess but I guess if you're on hinterland you, you can, can route, route back and you can route to the beach yeah. and then into the ocean Does that sound yeah right, I think Rich? the rules say that you can route on the beach if you have no other choice or you can route into the ocean if you have no other choice you know like for some reason uh, a Japanese guy is adjacent to you and you're on the beach and you were, let's say you already routed to the beach you were broken in the hinterland yeah, yeah. you routed to the beach okay but now a Japanese unit advances and now he's adjacent to you and you got to route again you are allowed to route into the ocean. In that case, okay, but um, yeah, but so that's my experience on the left, and I have these, I have Shoop there, ten neck three liter, and a, this big fire group of thirty, uh, shot neck three, and so my, my expectation is how great that's going to be, and he hasn't been that wonderful, except um, one thing you guys had done was there's the wire across the in front of us, and so. We tried to place Bangalore torpedoes, which is just the DCs used to slide under the uh, wire. You know, you see it in the movies all the time and in historical footage, uh, and blow up the thing. And then you guys were honest enough to, oh, we also have hidden half squads in there, and so we caught a couple of those with the tor- with the DCs. Um, and then, like that last terminal point, I'm like, well. You know, my leader, Jeff, had skulked back, so I didn't have a great target. There's probably another half squad hanging out in this wire right adjacent to my 30-shot stack. <laughs> and so I shot in the, that wire hex. Shot in it empty, not even knowing what you were shooting <laughs> and then, at. And I'm expecting them to put out a little half squad. You know, I'm like, okay, just want to get them out of the way. I'm sure I could have advanced on them and killed them. And they put out the eight firepower machine gun the six firepower the machine gun two crews and a 10 neg two liter and it was the greatest moment of the game i mean for you well no because i mean (laughs) now at that point i thought i was dead and i still thought it was great i'm like it's great you guys have this sitting right here and if it was a different phase you'd be well and you got yet so i guess it was my final that i randomly went to that hex so you would have had a half firepower back at me and I survived, and then I managed to yeah. kind of drive. So it did start to up. fall apart, but it was really yeah. a tense, tense, fun, fun moment because I'm sitting there going, oh, man, Jeff's got as big of a stack against me with a neg two as I have against him with a neg three. And it's just like, how is it? who's going to roll better? <laughs> you know, who's yeah. not going to break their machine guns and roll boxcars? Yeah. Um, and so on. So anyway, that was very cool. And then you had a strategy behind that. Do you want to talk about that? Well, the uh, the idea was to play a very forward defensive position, so that we we wanted to attack you as quickly as possible on the beach because we know that 
when you you break, you casualty reduce. And um, uh, and Rich had an idea which worked out really well, I think, to put wire all across, really all across our front, all yeah, across of your front on both sides. Yeah, it's of the, very frustrating. Both beaches that you were. So you would have to cross that. And then he had this really great idea of, of uh, deploying as many units as we could and put half squads hidden because we get to because hide those. Because um, it's palm. Palm trees um, right. in each one. Yep. So that was concealment terrain. And so those were hip. And um, that actually worked out really well. Some yeah. of our other stuff did not work out as we're, well. And, we're firing past those guys. We don't see them. Right. And for a whole turn... And a half, and then finally we think, okay, now we're going to start to move forward. And suddenly, oh no, we're moving into being pushed back. We're in the combat. So yeah, and at one point combat. you had two stacks of units that that fired their firepower, uh, but you didn't fire the squads that had the DCs. And you tried to move those in and put those DCs on the wire. Yeah, like in both cases, in both cases, my two three six Japanese squad broke you. Yeah, which was very one satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I was uh, the dice were with me that night. Yeah, and I think Richard was, so. was your idea to put that machine gun group in that hex uh, because it could also do a fire lane. Right, I was hopeful. Again, here was my thinking over on that side was um, yes, for sure it would have a because it was an eight firepower machine gun and a six firepower machine gun, so that would have been um, a six and a four firepower fire lane respectively. And this is on Red Beach too, by the way, for the people far who are left, looking. Yeah, far left flank of the. American. The far uh, right, east. So I figured you know, even if you got on the wire, all down that whole road, we would have had those two fire lanes just, you know, you'd have had a very difficult time getting across the wire if we would have deployed those fire lanes. I didn't think, or I guess I shouldn't say I didn't think, I was hopeful that you just wouldn't attack in that area and reveal him as soon as you did. And you were very, very smart, Dave, to attack the what you thought was an impossible empty hex. And then you discovered that they were actually there. And so then by the time we could shoot that powerful stack, it was already the advancing fire phase and firing at half firepower. And, you know, by then it was kind of too late to cause much damage. But I was really counting on that guy to cause tons of damage, which the Japanese really need to do in this thing to have a chance. They got to, in the beginning of the game, they got to cause a lot of points. They must or they're going to lose. And so you did a very good, very bright thing by doing that. That was a great tactic on your part. And then the half squads, well, I want to talk about the half squads. So... My thinking there was that you would do, or not just you, but Mike also, your, your partner, I was just you know, hoping that you guys would advance on top of the wire in the advance phase. I just figured that that would be a very common thing that would happen. And let's say you have a full squad with a 9, negative 1 leader, say. All right, so if you advance on the wire and we're hip, we're concealed, we'll get minus 2 for being concealed in the ambush roll. Because normally palm tree is not ambush terrain. But if you're concealed, it is, right? So we get minus yeah. two concealed. We get minus one because we're stealthy. You are not. You are, you are not stealthy. The marine's elite, but the marine is not stealthy. So so then we we would have a minus three ambush roll. So the odds of us ambushing you are at least fifty fifty. And then they call the then we call hand to hand. So we have two wimpy little firepower Japanese two Japanese two three seven first line half squad. Against your, let's say you had a seven six eight marine and a nine negative one leader, so that's eight firepower that we'd be against. We'd be at one to four odds, and the basic to kill number or uh, you know close combat number red is five. Isn't it? We have we have we have minus one ambush, minus one one for hand to hand, and minus one because you're on the wire. Oh yeah, we have minus minus three. three. 
we could get we, right. we could get eight. We could get a kill a seven six eight a nine negative one, and then Play and then an we can roll of and then we can withdraw because we're under the wire. But you yeah. didn't do that. <laughs> no, <laughs> and we we um kind of makes you want to start again. Over, we almost it? didn't use those DCs for the wire. We're like, you know, we can get over the wire. You just roll a dice. Yeah. You know, what if we roll a one, two, or three? We're under it already. And we advance out. This isn't as big a threat as we think. But I'm like, I don't know. I, think, I was actually getting kind of frustrated. And I looked at Mike, and I kind of just went, I'm I'm just going to blow this thing up. And that's when we re- revealed that. But, um, yeah, the other thing, we were very close to taking the assault, not on that left side where that hidden machine gun nest for, for that fire lane deal was. We were very close to going to that toward that center and trying to know out those big strong points first and then – I would turn to my left and sweep up the line, but we we just flipped it. I kind of I think I I pushed it more. I was to Mike. I was kind of afraid of getting stuck in the middle and surrounded. So I said, "No, nah, I'm going to push it on the left flank." So it was that close of a decision. But and you might remember um, Jeff and I met in private in the back hall there, and we were discussing whether he should prep fire because he's got rate of fire of three with those two heavy machine guns. He would have had a thirty flat on your ten negative three leader with three squads. And then he might get rate of fire as well with a you know fifty fifty chance, and and, and furthermore, and that's well, a, furthermore, uh, it was yeah. it was our defensive fire phase, so we would have also gotten the fire in the prep fire phase following because it would have been our turn. And he and I both decided we'll both take the, the blame, I guess, on that decision. We decided not to fire, and just wait and see what you did. And boy, I wish we would have decided otherwise. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I would yeah. have freaked out because then he's doing enough damage that last turn suddenly my marines started breaking all over from like you said the firepower from the and i felt bad i felt bad because yeah, i was fine. paying attention more to your side because i knew that's where the action was everything i was doing on my side with, with mike was almost irrelevant he was just kicking my butt with critical hits anyway what difference does it make he were all oh man twos. was that guy rolling twos but it, you know i didn't it, even then i didn't really think that mattered that much because um you know like a lot of his critical hits were with it he was shooting ap with his, um, you know, with his uh, seventy-five millimeter gun in my pillboxes, and yeah, I'd rather that he not got to. But you know, the TEM is zero when you're doing it that way, and so he was getting a four four flat shot instead of a two flat shot. So you know, I'd still rather that he not roll critical hits against me. But it wasn't like he was. But he, I think he rolled some critical hits with some other stuff too. But but anyway, I, I didn't do as well as Jeff on my side, but. Um, Anyway, I knew the game was going to be decided where Jeff was, and I felt bad because I wasn't paying any attention to what Mike was saying. <laughs> I was just paying attention to what you guys were doing because I knew that was important. And, um, yeah, well, we'll probably wrap this up there, and we'll, we, we'll meet again, probably the four of us maybe, for roundtable or whatever and after we finish the scenario. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll be talking again about it. And Tarwell will be occurring a lot. Yeah, and I took uh, some pictures, which we'll post kind of the progress that we're making. I took pretty good pictures of the setup that we did, and um, be interesting to hear other people's ideas of how they approach this campaign game one. We we do have some input on how other people did their setups for the full campaign, campaign game three. But I'd like to know if anybody's played campaign game one, how they did it. So. Yeah, it shows a two and zero in favor of the Japanese on uh, Roar, which. Uh Hard to believe. Well, again, in our case, again, just my opinion of where we are, we're only on game turn two, okay? So maybe I'm being super premature, but we got 27 or 28 points or something so far. Yeah, 29. Yeah, 29, okay. But we got to get 204 for us to win. Yeah. For the Japanese to win. So 
I really think, in my opinion, just knowing what I think I know about the scenario, is you, you, we, the, uh, the Japanese, really needed to get at least 50-some and, and basically kill like three-quarters of the Marines like in, in the beginning because you guys got 42 squads coming in next turn plus some other miscellaneous things. Well, next and, scenario, yeah, that yeah, that does seem. And you've crazy already, well, yeah, you've already cleared us off the beach, or you will have cleared us off the beach primarily by then. So those forty-two units are going to come on probably without much opposition, and so it seems like we needed to get at least fifty, which would have at least allowed us to have some semblance of a defense against your reinforcements. You, you know, plus you also would have been weakened because more of your units would have been um, eliminated. But now yeah. I think you guys are looking really good because, yeah, you're going to take some more points, but you're not going to take 180 points of casualties at this point. Yeah, although I think this next set in this scenario, there's a few uh, 10 squads that come on on those boats and waiting. They they might take a lot of points out, but still may not be enough. So anyway, then, we'll wrap it up for tonight. Yeah. Well, thanks, Rich, very much for coming on and going through all those tables. And this episode won't post for a few weeks, probably anyway, a couple of weeks. So if your tables are done, then it'd be great to to put those out at the same time the episode goes out. Yeah, they're nearly done. I just got a few things to do. But I appreciate you guys letting me uh, share them, and I hope that people find them useful. I'm sure they will. So in the meantime, remember to roll low. And rally well. But but not not when when you're playing playing us. Bye, buddy. Bye. See you later. Bye, Rich. Have a nice...